You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Land and Legacy podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Keith, and I've got Matt Dye here with me. We're going to be covering a lot of different stuff today. A lot of exciting stuff, a lot of uh, really cool stuff. Kind of going back to things that I used to do a lot more of. I kind of miss those days, but then I can guarantee you that if I went back to those days, I'd say, yeah, I don't really miss it that much. But Matt, I'll let you dive in and explain. Sounds good, Adam. Man, it's good to have another podcast um, up and going. But today we are talking about, first and foremost, public land hunting. Last week we talked about it a little bit, touched on some some different techniques used when we we're talking about hunting smaller properties. And some of those public ground places are small properties. So we touched on it some last it was week. Like, it was almost like we a teaser? cracked yeah. open the can of worms and now we're going to yeah. talk about it this week. It was like, hey... We, we By told the way, a few stories. And I was like, man, I have a lot of stories on public ground hunting. Let's just go ahead and, and jump in next week and do one entirely about public ground hunting. What kind of can of worms do you have? That was a very aggressive can of worms. <laughs> that like was a cold like one? A, yeah, like a Miller Lite like full a, of worms or uh, what? Or a, a Coca-Cola. It yeah. was a Coca-Cola. You, you know what <laughs> I pictured? can of worms. I don't know. Maybe they haven't come out with it. Maybe that would be the best type of fishing bait is, a, is like a... Uh, a can a of, seal. A, I think a I think a Vienna sausages are like that yeah. potted meat spam, just <laughs> but just worms. <laughs> yeah, that's disgusting. Okay, back to public land hunting. So again, last week we talked a lot about it, um, but didn't nearly scratch the surface, even though we talked so much. And this week we're diving in and going full bore into techniques, what we've used, stories, and. Honestly, some studies and stuff that have revolved around public land hunting and the intricacies of pressure and what that does to deer and how as a hunter you can use that to adjust your, your hunting techniques to stay successful on you know heavily pressured areas or areas that aren't pressured, where you need to go on those public land um, areas to find the deer that's still moving within um, you know during daylight hours and really just increase your chances. But... Before we do that, we have a, like a little special treat. Adam was actually online this week and, and doing some research and stumbled across something that was honestly a guy, amazing. A guy tagged me in, in it. Uh, I guess uh, uh, it was a guy I think that's listened to the podcast and knows how passionate we are. What's about, his name? Uh, Kyle like Murray. A, oh, okay. Kyle uh, Murray. He tagged me in it, and it was kind of, and he says, all his caption was Adam Keith. Cut all the cedars and plant some native grasses. Oh, he's definitely like listened to a podcast. Man. <laughs> and so uh, I'm like, huh, let's go and see. And it's actually a National Geographic video. So you know the quality is, is really Phenomenal. well done. Yeah. Really well done. And uh, so anyway, I'll give you a brief 
I we're going to share this this video on our page on our Facebook page today, today June tenth June tenth. So if you're listening to this and it's June fifteenth or whatever, you're going to have to go back a few days to see it. But I really encourage every listener out there to watch this video. It's about eight minutes, yeah, eight, eight, eight something minutes long, and it is. I can't even explain how much I love this video. The The production is really well done. The host is, is somebody, for me, he's automatically just like somebody I could sit down and listen to him talk all day long. Um, he's an elderly gentleman, probably in his 80s or early 90s. And uh, he basically, long story short, he bought a piece of ground. The roughest piece of ground in this area, in the middle of the, I guess the, what do they call those? The rolling hills of Texas. Hill country uh, of Texas. Hill country of Texas. Yeah. And uh, rough, rough, rough place. And basically he drilled seven wells, no water. When, even after he drilled the wells, they weren't getting any water. It was limestone, and there was no springs, and it was covered in cedar trees. Well, there were springs there, but they weren't active. They weren't active. They weren't That's running. That's right, yes. And so he cut all these cedars, and within two and a half years, the first spring came bubbling out of the ground. And now there's springs all over the place. 11 springs on this this property. And basically the whole story is that he changed the habitat back to what it was before we let cedars take it over. And, And he uses this land for something that's educational and a learning experience for all kinds of people. And it's just a really well done... The host is incredible. The production is incredible. And I, I can't even, I mean, it's it's almost, it makes me so happy. It makes, It's good for the soul. Oh, it is. And so I, we encourage every one of you to go watch it. And uh, maybe it, maybe it uh, encourages you to kind of reconsider what you're doing on your farm and on your property or, or some other property that you have access to. So Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, incredible illustration of honestly what we've been talking about and really this goes back to the podcast when we talked about um the devastating floods that we had here in missouri um this spring and you know 11 12 inches of rain in 24 36 hours and people are still cleaning up after the the aftermath of that and okay you're talking about flooding and this guy getting water what how are they how do they correlate and you know what's the difference and how are they similar so obviously this guy's Full of cedars, chock full of cedars, and he said there was so much brush you couldn't even walk through. There. Right, and they, they dozed it out. It looked like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, he dozed out the cedar trees and let the grass recolonize. Yeah, and and basically that that's that's the the essence of it all is that rain would fall on those cedars and either get evaporated off or they they'd stay and just run down the hillsides and and basically they're not the rainwater's not infiltrating into the soil and basically filling up the aquifers underneath the ground. And Adam, when he showed that rock in the video, how like identical was the rock to what we have right here on lot underneath of our, glades, our feet? It's just like, it's that, I forget what kind I of think limestone. It's a limestone. Yeah. It was a limestone. I forget what he called it, what type of limestone, but it was, it almost to me looks like, uh, oh, like one of those seashells or whatever out in the, you pick yeah, up this. Very so, porous. Very but, porous. Yeah. And uh, that's what kind of limestone he had there. And that's identical, just to the eye, anyhow, of, of what you know is, is here and, and, and present in our, southwest Missouri, northern Arkansas. Glades, yeah. A lot of our rock outcroppings are, are, they're either, we either have flint rock in a mm-hmm. lot of the areas that's really not, doesn't have rock outcroppings, but in the glady areas, we get these huge rocks coming Massive. out of the glades. Yep. And that's what it looked like. Yep. And 
I think it's a good reminder. I, I, it was encouraging to see it because we talk about it a lot, and there's a lot of research that shows it. But people, even my my dad, I hear this comment. It's like, well, there used to be water here. Grandpa used to catch fish out of this creek, and you look, and that, that creek hasn't had – I think I shared that story on that same podcast. Yep, sure did. Um, used to catch the fish out here, and you're like, how was that even possible? And it's because the water table is so much higher, and, and that's what was expressed in this video is that – the water table was almost non-existent, it, and yeah. now it's right there. So basically, he it's got the cedars out be. of there. He got the cedars out. He got grass, and he filled up that underground aquifer. And whenever it's filled up, the excess water comes out in the form of a spring. Yeah, and, and now he's got whole ponds. Story. He's got active springs. He's got creeks that are running year-round in the dead center of Texas. And I think and there's runs, a couple runs, important. Yeah, well. That a couple of those springs, I guess, combine and turn into a creek and end up running down into the Dallas or it Austin. Runs in, I Austin. think Austin, Texas. Yeah, yeah Austin, Texas. They're able to track so. kind of where it goes. But um, I think there's a couple of re- just really important lessons, and and I, this goes right back into deer management. Some things that we face as you know, cl- I mean, consultants and and with our with our clients is you know they have a property and they they think oh, this is what I got, so let's just do the best with it. But like. The, the whole idea of habitat management means to change. And he saw this property and saw it as rough and saw it as, um, you know, a, a diamond in the rough. But basically, he removed the rough and, sh- you know, proved that it is a diamond. You know, he didn't go into it saying, well, this is what I got. So this is what I got. He said, no, this I'm is gonna, what I got. I'm going to settle for the cedar trees. Right. He said, this is what I've got, the roughest roughest piece of ground in the area. And I'm going to turn it I'm going to make it what it needs to be and should be. One line that really stuck out to me in that video is he said, we're going to work with Mother Nature, not against Mother Nature. And I was just like, yes, somebody who gets it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he was a very successful business guy, but, you know, he he still, he approached it in the right manner and and didn't let the, the current state of the habitat deter him from doing what was right. And again, you know, it goes back to, you know, when you're when you're diving in and doing work on your property, know that okay, it's going to take work, but it's going to take change to get to where that property needs to be. And don't be afraid of the change because once you see the video and see the transformation of that property and the good that it had done for the wildlife, the grasses, the you know uh, all the even the amphibians who are now using the water, every single thing. Yeah, I think there was that video of the salamander going down yeah, to the yeah. I think of. Uh, the the picture, I guess, the screenshot that showed. I'm I'm guessing the neighboring property and then his yeah, property. The fence line, basically, they pan from the neighbors to his. Like it was like oh. straight cedars to grass country. grassland. Yeah, and it was. Uh, <laughs> I can't even talk. I, I, I can't even express how exciting it was. Speechless. Yeah, but it's incredible to see it. Come watch this. Watch it. Watch it. And then I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh! And in the the. And you were like, eh, eh, uh, Emily, Emily, come here and watch this. <laughs> yeah, which is my wife. And I made her. We were laying in bed last night. I was like, okay, you need to watch this. Because <laughs> one of the, the cool things was the guy had named his his um, property Sela, which is from the book of Psalms. And that means to like stop and pause and rest and to, to take in what's around you. And they used that in scripture to just basically pause and reflect on what had been said. But he used that as a reflection of the property and to stop and pause and look at what had happened and the change that had occurred and take in basically the the beauty that you know god had created 
and the whole idea of management to restore it to what it was uh, needed. And, you know, honestly, the whole video and why we like it so much is that it really reflects everything, you know, land and legacy. And, and he left the video saying, you know, this is my legacy. This is what I'm leaving. And it's like, oh, my gosh, my heart just like fluttered a little bit. Yeah. No, I'm not in love with the guy, but just the story and the example that he's leaving, because, again, he's this is now an educational center for people to come and look at. And he's sharing he's molding, that with, he's molding minds and educating young. Yeah. There's several shots of, of like elementary age kids yeah. that are there. And it's a learning. And they're center. using that property to teach these other kids about stewardship of the land mm-hmm. which is molding their minds to where they're going to go out in the future and that's that's what they're going to be thinking which is exactly what we should be thinking yeah so this man is uh, tip of I, our caps to that man because he has just flat out just nailed it nailed it nailed yeah. it and the, the mic drop for <laughs> yeah. uh, i forgot i forgot his name Ham- old man Hamburger river down in texas something i don't know um something like that but anyway the sailor uh a Selah property. Yeah. I, and the the cool thing was that I, I go back, and this is just a family thing, but my granddad, who's unfortunate, he's no longer with us, but he wore that exact same hat, same camouflage pattern, basically, the same hat that that guy had. He, it, it was just like, dang, pulled a little bit of a heartstring for me. But seeing the property, seeing the hat, seeing Selah, which is also a funny thing that Emily, my wife, wants to name one of our kids Selah. So I was like, Pff. I want to meet this guy. This guy's awesome. Just yeah. pulling some some uh, heartstrings there. But anyhow, the video's awesome. It's going up on our Facebook page today, June 10th, and you really really need to check it out. I encourage you to do so if you're if you're thinking about habitat management and um, just the benefits of it and, and what a property truly can do and and the transformation that it can go through. It's called 50 years ago this was a wasteland. He changed everything. That's the name of the video. So Definitely check it out. It's going to be on our Facebook page and um, share it with some people because, again, this just embodies land and legacy and um, just the the incredible change that a property can go through. Again, I, two and a half years he got water back? Two and, and a half ridiculous. years. ridiculous. Yeah. That's awesome. It but was amazing. Now let's let's dive into some public land hunting. Yeah, that, that's what they're all here to listen to, I think. Um, so... Public ground hunting. This is something I I know there's kind of like a grass is always greener. Like I see this a lot on Facebook and social media pages where you kill a good a good deer on private ground and some guy says, oh, must, you, be nice. must be nice. You ought to try that on public ground. Yeah. And then the guy that's got private ground is like, oh, I miss the days of public ground hunting. And it's, it's just like you miss those days, but then when you go back to them, you realize that it's not nearly as much fun as private ground sometimes. Well, but I will say I've had a lot of, a lot of fun hunts. And I think for me, you know, we talk a lot about what hunting means to us. And to me, hunting is, is far greater than, than getting to say you fill the tag or put a buck on the wall. Um, for me, a lot of my best hunts and favorite hunting stories come from trips where there was five guys and we killed one doe on public ground and it was sitting around a fire having a good time everyone just judged you by the way yeah I'm sorry and so <laughs> i i really don't care what no, th- but that, that's what are. hunting is to you that what it embodies it, it, you know to me hunting is so much more it's about the yeah. relationships the memories, absolutely and enjoying what god has given us and yeah and so 
I love I love thinking back to some of those public ground hunts, and we used to have the old. We had this the buck hut, which was an old. I mean, it, it might as well have been a, a pop can that we filled up with air and just swelled it up to where it was like <laughs> real thin, almost like that real thin tin you see on a on an old screen door. Like that was the casing or the shell yeah. of the buck hut. It was painted camouflage with spray paint. It and made on, it. It and made on that the back. It it was. They bought it as the duck hut. And then we put a little line in, on the D and turned it into the buck hut. Oh, my. And and it had, like, no insulation. And we took it up to northern Missouri one time. And, and I, being the youngest guy of the bunch, I always hunted with older, with when I was first learning how to Your hunt. Your brother's age. My brother's age, who's stuff, three, yeah. four years older than me. And all his friends were a couple years older than him. So I hunted with the older guys. So I always got put in the worst spot. So I slept on the floor and almost froze to death, it felt yeah. like, because there was no insulation. It was super cold, northern Missouri, late October. Anyway, I just have so many great memories about public ground hunting. About freezing and, your butt off. And, yeah, and, and walking <laughs> and going on trips and during the Indian summer of October, and people call it the October lull, and, and not seeing hardly anything. We always killed a few does, it seemed like, or, mm-hmm. or a couple times it, uh, we'd shoot a button buck and it was just like, <laughs> yeah, we got one. Like, yeah. can we go back and cook it up or whatever? Mm-hmm. And it was just a lot of great times. Just and to memories. me, it was just, it was just, I, I just enjoy thinking back. I haven't had a great, uh, an opportunity here in the last couple of years to really go hunt those public grounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still get excited and dream of the day that we're going to come out of retirement or come out of the, the public ground. All, all those buddies are now, they have private ground around to hunt. We don't get to hunt together as and much. And families. And families. <laughs> and, and it's like, one of these days, we ought to just plan another trip to where we all just pack up and go. Just four days. Everyone clear schedule. This is happening. <laughs> and we're, Let's go. And I think about how miserable it would be because we used to ride bikes. We used to hike in. And now we're all out of shape, and it'd just be like, this is so <laughs> stupid. What are we doing? Yeah, you'd be getting to your stand a half hour after sunrise. Sweating, and yeah, it'd be terrible. Well, we used to do that, too. Anyhow. Anyway, we'd, yeah. be, we'd be late and be like, oh, whatever. It's just public ground. I right. I want to walk to my stand anyway. But now, there were some things towards the end that we figured out that made it really successful when we started killing some good deer on public ground. And good deer, mature bucks, big bucks, whatever you want to say. What a lot of guys get out there and chase. Mm-hmm. We figured that out. And there were certain steps that we had to take to get there. And, you know, we talk about public ground hunting all day. But at the end of it, we want to figure out how we can be successful on public ground. Yes. And, and year in and year out. And there's a couple different things. You may be going, okay, I, I go to this new area every single year. But for us, we're going to cover a couple topics. But let's just say your buddies call you up and they say, hey, for me, I grew up in Missouri. I still We're still out of Missouri. And for me growing up, it was like, hey, we're going to try, uh, let's just throw out Fountain Grove this year, which is near Chillicothe, Missouri. Or we're going to try Bunch Hollow. We're going to try, um, oh, <laughs> name any conservation area. It was like, okay, where is it? Oh, and they tell you, it's 6,000 acres at, near this town. Okay, sounds cool. Let's go. And it didn't take much convincing. No, it was just like, I love the, the challenge of hunting a new piece of ground. So when you when you get to there, I think it. I always 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 started out hunting public ground by scouting at home. Mm-hmm. I would pull up at, for now. Now we have a great tool of Google Earth. We could get on Google Earth. We could zoom in. We could look at aerial photos, satellite images, and just kind of see what the landscape is. We can see crop fields. 
Some places are food plots. Some places are just straight timber. Some places may just be a lot of, like in Kansas, it may be a lot of native grasses, but mm-hmm. just to figure out what's going on in that neighborhood. And then the great thing is you start looking on Google Earth. Then you start trying to, you go make a new tab. You pull up a topographical map and you start yes. looking at the landscape. And and we're really, at Terrain this point, changes. we're really trying to locate because I don't really like to look at crop fields as much because... When it comes to public ground, it seems like a, a lot of people flock to the food source. They mm-hmm. flock to the crop field or they flock to the food plot. And so deer don't typically get there. I mean, I think of, I used to have this rule when I was hunting and my buddies and everybody would bug me about it because it was like, I just want to see a bunch of deer. I come from Southern Missouri. I'm not used to seeing many deer. But when I went up north and I could actually see because there was open fields and I wasn't hunting timber, I'm like, I just want to see a lot of deer. If mm-hmm. I go out and I see 35 deer tonight, I'm happy. Yeah. And there was one time on a, uh, I forget the name of the, con- Reform, that's it, Reform Conservation Area near Fulton, Missouri. And I'm like, I'm going here. There was this big, huge crop field, and it was actually clover, hmm. as crazy as it sounds. It was like a 10-acre clover field. Hmm. And through the middle of it, there was a ditch that uh, wasn't planted, and it showed up on Google Earth as being an X. And I'm like, X marks the spot. So I went I'll there, go there, and I'm like, I'm going to go here and see a ton of deer. And I ended up seeing like 33 deer, and I, and I actually killed a doe. Mm-hmm. I think it was a doe. It might have been a buttonhead. Anyway, I killed a, I shot a, a deer, and I was the only one to kill that one, kill something that night. And it was just like, oh, yeah, boys, my my theory and my approach worked. It was all just just plain luck, if you want to say that. <laughs> it but, was a 10-acre clover field. <laughs> yeah, it's a 10-acre clover field. But a lot of times, if you're targeting mature deer, you're not yeah. gonna, they're not going to walk out in the field like that unless they're chasing a doe during the rut. When they're, mm-hmm. And they're, we're really focused on that. Yeah. And But we always started finding these deer, these larger bucks, near a certain thing. And we'll dive into it a little bit later. But um, So first off, I want to start scouting from maps. I want to look at Google Earth, Topo Step maps. Step one. And yeah. start overlaying and try to find bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. If I can find bottlenecks, the so first thing I always did is I would I would print off a map of the area or a certain portion of the area that I'm going to hunt, and I would start putting X's. These are the areas I want to look at. And that was like, okay, scouting, the first day, I'm going to look at these areas. Key to that is I'm going to look at these areas when the wind is right, right for to it. To be able to access that so area. So let's say I put six areas on a map. And the wind's only good for three of those. I'm only looking at those three areas, and I'm looking at those three areas in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. And I want to look at them when I'm less less likely to bump anything or alert anything. Correct. And so that was that's that's what I do at home. The next thing I do at home is I call up the area manager, the biologist, property manager, wherever it is, if there even is one for that right. area. And I'm going to call him up and say, hey, just trying to see what's going on. I plan on being up there in a couple of weeks. Just kind of curious what's going on in the area. Are you seeing a lot of hunters? And if he tells you, I'm not seeing many hunters, then just, okay, keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. If he tells you he's starting Throw to see, the back it, pocket. see it, but he's seeing hunters everywhere, you got to know, okay, hunting pressure is high. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to kind of really watch my game because deer are probably already on alert and most likely nocturnal. And I'll dive into how I would hunt with Address that. those nocturnal yes. deer. Yeah. So, but keep in mind when you're talking to a biologist, because speaking from... Working as one of those guys, managing an area when I was in college and shortly after, 
managing a property, you're they're either a hunter or they're not a hunter. Mm-hmm. If they're a hunter, they're probably not going to tell you exactly where they hunt, where they hunt, or where the best deer are, or their plan B, C, and D, and E. And you want to find out if they're a hunter if they hunt that property. Yep. And so keep that in mind. Another thing, if they're a not hunter, a non hunter, it sounded like I said not hunter. If they're <laughs> a non hunter, then they're probably not really keyed up on where all the best sign is, where Savvy. they're seeing deer. You know, they may they may have jumped a big buck on a tractor, bush hogging or whatever, mm-hmm. and they say, oh, yeah, right down here by food plot 12, that's where I saw that big buck. And you get to food plot 12 all excited, and there's no trees to hunt, or it's not set up great. It's down in a ravine. and an old not, weedy There's no way patch. to really hunt it. Yeah. And so keep that in mind. It is nice to talk to those guys and see if they give you any tips and tricks. But I'll tell you, when I worked at at a big conservation area, it's like, I don't even know, six to 8,000 acres. Whenever we kind of had this unspoken rule that when somebody asked, because we got asked that question all the time, and I'm sure everybody who I, ever works on there is, where's I, the big bucks at? Where, where, where do I, I going to hunt? Where do I hunt? We always, always, always just said, food plot 20. I would, I would go up to food plot 20. Food plot 20 was a nice alfalfa field or cornfield one year. And it was just a big, beautiful field. That's just where we sent everybody. Mm-hmm. So they could just be sending you. Or there was another, a wild I did chase. have one supervisor who would always say, for some reason on that area, there was no food plot. I think it was 14. Mm-hmm. It, or there was food plot 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way 20. But there was no food plot 14. And he always told him food plot 14. <laughs> well, that's just and mean. So, <laughs> it, they were looking on the map. And they're like, where's fruit, food plot 14? It was like, what? Like, it was almost like we were telling them to go to this hidden place that only Wild we knew chase. where it was. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Keep that in mind when you're scouting. And another thing And making do, those phone calls. It's almost like there... And we'll, I was going to touch on this later on when we, when we start talking and diving in about pressure. But there's a cultural aspect of, of hunting, especially public ground, that you really need to understand. You know, understand the the thoughts that other people are going through and how you can use that honestly against them. And so you have the advantage. And honestly, this is one of those cases where they might be using reverse psychology on you and you got to figure out and weave through what they're saying. Now it still is good to call just to hear their voice and just to listen to what they're saying. Cause they might be a really honest person and say, no, this is, this is, I've seen good deer come out of this place year in and year out. I'd start there or just kind of give you an overall direction of the habitat you know, we're pretty much just uh, hardwood timber, 30 years old, 40 years old. Or they might have said, hey, we, we just timbered this place two years ago over here. That's going to pique my interest. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people might be turned away from that. Who knows? But just getting as much information as you can about a place um, well, is always a benefit. One thing that comes to mind is when I was in high school and in early part of college, we always – we always put in for managed hunts on, yes. on conservation areas here in Missouri. And there was a couple of them, Swan Lake and Whetstone Creek and then the August Day Bush. Those were the top three. Mm-hmm. And August Day Bush, every forum we ever read said it was brushy, but there was great deer. I was like, I don't really. It's bow hunting. I don't really want to drive in the brush and have to go all the way to St. Louis and fight mosquitoes. Because that was one thing. They said mosquitoes is biggest hummingbirds up there. <laughs> I don't really want to deal with that. Swan Lake was uh, earn a buck, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh, judging, uh, I don't know. That's just uh, my luck. There's going to be a giant step out, and I haven't shot a doe yet. To, and I just don't want to be tempted and have to deal with that. Whetstone <laughs> Creek was mid-Missouri. It had a lot of timber, um, but it also had, it was kind of broken up, 50 crop, 50 timber. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, Whetstone Creek it is. 
first year, it usually took three to four years to build up preference points. Let's, let's points. Real, real quick, some people might not know what a managed hunt is. Okay, Let, Let's so talk, break that down for In them. Missouri, managed hunt is, there's a conservation area, it's public ground, but to get on that to hunt, you can't just, nobody can just drive up and hunt it. Right. You have to get drawn. So sometime during the summer, uh, uh, July, I don't even remember if it Basically, is, you it put in. You put in your so name, your conservation, your conservation number, and... Then you're put into a pile of numbers, and a they pool. pull out a pool. They pull out um, numbers, and you get drawn for this managed hunt. Then you buy another tag. That was the great thing is mm-hmm. you got another buck tag yeah. just for that area, right? but you had another buck tag. So if you filled your buck tags down here, you still had a buck tag to hunt on this managed hunt. Right. And so yeah, they, they may only have – they may only draw 500 for a two-week period. The, several different managed hunts are set up different. You may have it for the entire season, or you, you might may have, have it for two weeks, or you may have it for a 10 days of rifle season. Mm-hmm. So there's just a whole bunch of different stuff, but basically a managed hunt is public ground, but they put your name in. It's a draw system, and, basically. Yeah, it's a draw system, and they put your name in there, and, and you may get drawn and hunt with another group of hunters, but not free to everybody. Not open from yeah. September 15th to January 15th. Yeah. So that's what a managed hunt is. Another reason why you would call... I'll get back on that. Mm-hmm. Is we got drawn. First year we put in Whetstone Creek, we thought we had won the lottery. In our minds, it was just the equivalent of winning the lottery. It was like, <laughs> I'm sure. We're going we're gonna to fill our buck tags. Everything we'd heard about this place was fantastic. We're like, we kind of feel savvy and know what we're doing. We're going to do good up here. And we did. But there was one thing that we wish we would have known before we put in for Whetstone Creek. So going back, this is how far back it was. We we show up and we're like, man, where's all the deer? Like, then we finally ran into a guy and he's like, we got hit with blue tongue. Now mm-hmm. I'm dialing it back because that was when everybody called it blue tongue, but yeah. it's EHD. Yeah, and they got hit with EHD the year before, or actually the summer of. So they're just completely. They said they lost over sixty percent of the deer because on those conservation areas they do spotlight surveys, all kinds of surveys to see what the deer herds. Mm-hmm. It was a really wet spring, so they had no crops, and it was also a year where they had a late frost in the spring, so there was acorns. no acorns. Oh, so man. No acorns, no crops, and low deer numbers because of EHD. Mm-hmm. So we were just like, we thought we'd won the lottery, but it was just like, ha, not even close. Yeah, not, not this year. So that year, we focused entirely on clover. Yeah. There was few places of clover, and that's where we hunted. Mm-hmm. And but actually, calling ahead, and getting that information would have been nice, right? But we were early on, and mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't call them. Lessons and, learned. But on the flip side of that is, there was five of us went up there, and we had the time of our lives. And right. Some of my favorite stories that I share happened mm-hmm. on that. But that was one thing where I wish we'd have called ahead and known that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think we ended up killing two bucks and three and three does off of that. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, it was work to get there. So sure. that's another reason why you call ahead, find out. Okay, if if we'd have known that, we could have we could have designed our plan and first day gone in and be like, okay, we're looking for clover. Mm-hmm. But we spent the first couple of days just looking for crops. Then we ran in the guy and we wasted a couple of days. Yeah. So yeah. keep that in mind. Call ahead. Find out what's going on. Scout from the house. So when you get up there, you have a pretty good idea where you you're got already a plan. Going. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you know. A managed hunt, I think sometimes they get a little bit of a, you know, a lot of people overlook them, and 
I, I'm thinking from my days back in Virginia, and I've, I've ran, helped run a couple managed hunts before and have put in for them. Um, and sometimes they might seem a little bit um, questionable just based on the, the acreage. But the reason that, or the likely reason that these areas are a managed hunt versus open to the public from day one of the season to the close of the season is is possibly due to the large amount of deer on the place that they're trying to increase the number of hunters and have deer moving and basically that's why they're doing earn a buck in some of these areas because they want the most deer harvested off that place instead of just having a long drawn out season they want to kind of hit it hard and basically the most number of hunters that they can ethically safely get in there to harvest deer and get out and encourage them to shoot more does and so they have the ability for an earn a buck um that's the reason why they're doing it and so again some of these areas are, are highly regulated they might be in a suburban area or there's a couple places back in virginia that were um ammo depots and they were you know they didn't want to regulate every single day of the season so they would open it for three days this month three days the next month and you drew and you had a preference of okay i want to pull this month so you'd go and you hunt that month you hunt three days down there and it, they could regulate it a lot better, but the deer density in those areas were incredible. And and they, because they're managed differently and through the state, they kind of set their own guidelines in some areas just for those specific areas. So and you got 2,000 acres. Of, one other thing about these managed hunts mm-hmm. is they, in Missouri they are, and I'm assuming they are this in, in most places, but yeah. they're free to to the public some some in some the, of them you, you have, have to pay, pay for yeah some but you just pay a ten dollar fee or, yeah yeah a lot $15. of times you have to buy another tag but that's a whole another tag a lot of times that's not mm-hmm. in some places missouri they are the same tag as as your normal tag some places are completely different but tag, when you compare that to an out-of-state tag if you want to go hunt a different state you know or paying for a lease or yeah. buying land it's a great it's a bargain i i love the managed hunts and mm-hmm. i used to run some as well and the guys that killed the good bucks were usually the guys who did things a little bit differently. A little bit different. And so yep. now we're diving into hunting. And one thing that we started to develop later on that made us successful is, and, and almost in life, you always, the successful people do things a little bit differently. And you have to think and how to make yourself different than everybody else. That's where that culture aspect I was talking about earlier kind of comes in. But go ahead. I will dive and into so for us, what we started doing was if it was a conservation area, and I touched on this last podcast, was we would bike in. So while everybody else is walking and it takes a little bit longer to get it back there, we would bike in. So we could cover a lot more ground a lot quicker. That was one advantage. Another thing we started to develop was boating. If So the conservation area that I used to hunt was Dream Mincy Conservation Area, which is right along the Arkansas border, right along Bull Shoals. There was a portion of that where you could either walk, ride a bike, but it was like, I don't even know, a mile, three quarters, or three three miles. It was a long ways. I'll say that. It was Enough a long way. Enough to make you ways. question wanting to ride a bike. Yes. And... The bad thing was it was pretty flat mm-hmm. until you dove down towards the lake, and then it was just... Drops off. It was terrible. And I actually shot a doe way back there one time, and that was the only time I've ever had to quarter a deer up to get it out, because there was no possible way yeah. the, the other way, um, because we rode bikes in yeah. and shot her way back next to the lake. The other side of that would have been it, the people that were successful were taking boats in. Right. And so you could boat in, beach it, 
beach the boat up on the up on the shore and walk quarter mile, half a mile, whatever. Not sweat getting to your stain like you would the other direction and come so, in from a different a different way. And that's and another the, the way best to part about that was was the lake was on the eastern half of that property. Uh-huh. So you could come in anything west or north or even south in places, you had a great wind. Yep. The other way you were coming, if it was a west wind, the wind was at your back the whole the way in. The whole way in. And so that's one advantage. That's That was a big big way to make yourself different on that area. Is, mm-hmm. is, uh, Just by boating, boating changing in. your access. Another you thing approach. you can do is, of course, hiking. It, early on, it was like, all right, I'll just walk further than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to do it. If you, A lot of the research, and I know you're going to share some numbers, is, yeah. it clearly shows that... Um, the deer, the hunter density is closer to the roads than anywhere else. Um, and we'll touch on that in a second. But another way is canoeing. Let's say you're hunting a public ground, a small piece of ground that's that's got a stream running through it. Canoe or kayak your way in because a lot of times, especially in the afternoons as the thermals are falling, you're already set up close to the creek, which is where those thermals are most likely mm-hmm. going to be going. So mm-hmm. you're going to be, and you're not leaving a scent trail. By canoeing in. You're not walking through a bunch of brush and leaving your scent all over the brush. You're just going to canoe in along the river. That's another way to change it up. Yeah, yeah. But thinking, trying to make yourself different than everybody else was it w- was and is a key to improving your hunting success on public ground. You know, that, that reminds me of a story. And I, before we dove into the podcast, I hadn't thought about it. And then... Um, when you were talking about kayaking in and just a different approach, it, it hit me. I was like, holy crap, I forgot about this. So I'm going to tell a quick story. There's a public um, area. This is back in Virginia when I was growing up, and it, it flowed along the river. So it's long and narrow, and there's one section um, that kind of went up right along a road um, away from the river, a big creek that flowed into it. So you had a parking lot by the road um, that you'd access going south, basically, towards the river to hunt. But there's one sliver. I mean, we're talking hundred yards wide maybe that went north of the road and that creek you could access um, was running north and south so basically if you were to park at the parking lot everyone else would go south but i was thinking well, you know what you want to try this a little bit different i could put my kayak in at the parking lot and paddle upstream this creek and then i'd have that that tiny strip to hunt and the reason for doing this was that to the north of that road was a massive crop field and they always planted beans in there and during the summertime i drive by back and forth and see a bunch of deer in this bean field i was like oh, man that would just be an awesome place you know i wish i had that to hunt and then i really started looking at a map I'm like you know there is a way there's a way i could hunt that and well, if so there's a will there's a way exactly man. so i one day i had time i put the kayak in the truck drove to the parking lot put it in i paddled upstream and this is dur- just during the summer, doing that preseason scouting, and I found incredible places where deer were coming off private land, crossing that hundred acre yard. I mean, hundred. Um, I said hundred acres, yeah. Strip of woods right along that creek, crossing onto that, crossing the creek. The 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 creek crossings were ridiculous. I mean, highways that deer well, were crossing, you're coming uh, into that. Stirring up another thought that I'll touch on as soon as you're done. So, my thought was. Okay, no one's doing this. Like, everyone's heading south. I'm heading north. So basically, remember the whole north and south, the way those thermals are flowing. I would be able to put my kayak in, 
paddle upstream, have the thermals in the morning situation hitting me in the face. If I even stayed in my cock, hitting me in the face and pushing back down towards the south, towards the big water, and those deer would be coming out of the, the ag fields from the west, crossing that river on those. I mean, they were just pretty steep banks. So, I mean, you knew where they are going to cross. Crossing that um, creek and back onto the public land and moving across. So I would be able to access it and not stir up anything. And then again in the evenings, if I went ahead in the evenings, I just paddle up, knowing my my the scent was dropping from the north down the south because of the thermals. And then the deer would be moving from east to west again, right back in those same areas. And it, it just was a perfect situation. And then unfortunately, I had to move away and wasn't able to hunt it, um, move to a different state. But I, it was just, you know, that movie, The Perfect Storm. Yeah. Like it, it, I was summertime, and I was thinking. I'm going to kill a giant. Like, there's a good possibility that I would kill a great deer here because the further I went up, there's basically more secluded fields, ag fields, that I didn't even know about from the road that you could see. So they were like almost a, let's say, a, a kill plot. That smaller bean field, ag field, then they go out to the to the larger fields, closer, darker at dark. And I was just salivating there in my kayak thinking, holy of- cow, this is dynamite. And how would you would you have hunted out of the trees in that island? Honestly, we, I think there's a lot of there's a great way to stay in the boat and still That's hunt. Exactly what I was I was already thinking. I'm building a blind. I'm tying the front of the kayak off. I'm tying the back of the kayak off to the the bank, and I I was able to draw from the kayak everything. And the the benefit of that is is the Queen's law, and um, what that basically states is that moving water. Riparian areas are owned by the government, not public. And if you can navigate it with a not kayak private. canoe. Not private. Did you I, said I, not public, not private. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, not, yes, the not water, private. Yes. The water is owned by navigable, the government. If it's navigable, is that even a word? If it's na- if you can navigate it. Yeah, how about go. that? We'll simplify. <laughs> Excuse my southern Ozarks. I can't say Mountain that word. Mountain language. Yeah, <laughs> my language. <laughs> my twang. Yeah. Um, if you can That's navigate that water, if you can navigate that water, then it's public ground. It's yes. owned by the it's government. It's basically treated by the it basically. The one thing is, I think in a lot of states you can't shoot a deer that's swimming. Correct. So if it's Correct. walking, if it's a shallow, if it's a shallow and, like Nebraska or Kansas where yes. we hunt, where it's a really shallow, it's a few inches. That was the beautiful thing. You couldn't access it by. a by a canoe because it was so shallow. So, and basically the deer are wading up to maybe their, their first little ankle joint, but like my kayak and thank gosh, I was 150 pounds soaking wet then, but I was just skimming. I thought you were still Hey man, I'm trying to think I bulked up a little bit. Anyhow, you're skimming. I could, I could float in six inches of water and I'm basically, I was thinking I'm the only one who could do this. I'm the only one stupid enough to try this. But it would it would have worked, and I'm disappointed that I didn't or couldn't because I, it was it was the perfect storm. Yeah. But and that's 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 the thing of everyone's of going guys, south. I'm going north from you, this you way. Made yourself different than everyone exactly. else. Exactly. And deer. A lot of times, deer are conditioned to the way that everyone else everyone does. Everyone else is doing it. Yeah. That's how they avoid danger by learning those tendencies. And if they learn those tendencies, they're going to avoid those areas. So if they're avoiding those areas, they're going to be in the areas that people aren't going to. So now we're talking the strategy, and let's just say, since we've touched on it, 
deer are are getting conditioned to pressure. They're yes. they're getting pressured. Right. And what do pressured deer do? Well, that's a great question, Adam. That's a whole other can of worms if you want to open up another one of those over there. Um, but there there has been quite a bit of research that over the years has, has come out. And really, if you're one of those people, and again, you want to try things differently, this article is actually produced by um, Kip Adams out of QDMA. You're getting um, off my topic. I am? What do pressure deer do? Oh, they go away from the pressure. And they go nocturnal. Yes. There's a lot of research. That I was shows diving that, in too early. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're That's like, a cue? hey, you're getting away from my answer and what I wanted to say. Do you remember to last go... week when I asked you a question? You you didn't even know if I was addressing yeah, it well, to you. Yeah, you just did it to me too. So now we're even. <laughs> we're even. <laughs> well, anyway, so deer that are pressured, it, it, there's a lot of research that shows they don't leave their home range. That, Correct. And a lot of times they, they especially don't leave their core area. Mm-hmm. What they'll do is they stay nocturnal. They move at night. So a lot of times when you're on public ground, there's sign everywhere, but you're not seeing them. It's not that the deer just got pushed off the area, but they're they're just staying. They're staying down in their daylight. secure cover, and they're moving after dark. Right. So how to hunt those? This is the thing that we really figured out later on was the good deer, and we and we un. I don't know how to say this without just sounding like, um. I don't know. I'll just dive in and say this is what I. This is how we realized where all the big deer were. We were the last two days. We would do drives or pushes. Mm-hmm. We'd seen this on a lot of videos where we would put one guy up or upwind and let and let his scent run through this thicket where you knew the deer were at. We knew the deer were in there, and we would let the scent run through the thicket, and the other guys would sit around with wind in our favor and watch the deer come. They weren't busting out of there. They weren't like running. They, but they were they were easing out of there, mm-hmm. and that's when we started seeing some really good bucks. And we're like, wait a second, we've walked by that little drainage how many times yeah. this week, and we have never jumped anything out of there. But when we put our scent through there and put some pressure in it, that's when they all came out. Right. We're like, hmm, okay, let's think about this. We would go to another area. We're like. Let's just push it and see if there's anything in there. Another great deer run out of there. We're like, wow, okay, that's where they're hanging. We've been walking by. The, there's a good chance we've walked by that buck several times this week. Day and in and day out, hung there mm-hmm. because he knows. On in 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 the history of people hunting it, that a lot of guys don't go in there. Like a lot of times, those were the areas that didn't have trees you could hang in. Right, they were like little ditches that had scrub oaks and shingle oaks and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cedars and just nasty, nasty stuff that we don't weren't going to walk through that's where the bucks were hanging out and that's where a lot of deer were hanging out but i think the key you said right there was you couldn't really hunt it because there wasn't really trees to hang in and so, so people avoided hunting it. them from the ground people avoided them right and that's something different we did something different we hunted them from the ground in the area so deer that are nocturnal they're moving at dark sometimes mm-hmm. they may move during daylight the only chance of you killing a nocturnal deer is the fact that he might move a little bit before dark or mm-hmm. he's a little bit late getting back so we started hunting close to the bedding areas correct close and don't think of your traditional bedding area crp on public ground a lot of times those bedding areas are the thickets right next to the road mm-hmm. right next to the area right next to the shop building that to where they where the people that manage it store all their equipment places where people aren't walking through it constantly yes 
and that was where we really started finding the deer mm-hmm. and the good deer and the the big bucks. That's where they were. And so hunting them from the ground, getting close to where, getting close to those areas to know that if they're if he's going to move today, before dark, I'm close enough to where he's going to walk by. Right. And that was the key. Mm-hmm. And you've got to get you've got to remove yourself from the high pressure areas and get back to okay. I know it's that's thick. Deer are going to be in there. That's just where I need to be. And if he's going to move, like you said, if he sticks his nose out outside that bedding area and he's within range, I've got that's my only chance. Mm-hmm. Unless you know you're hunting the rut and deer are actively moving um, during the day. But if you're hunting an October situation or a cold front. And then the deer have been pressured. You need to get yourself back there to those bedding areas because they're gonna they're gonna want to move during um, daylight hours because of that cold front's getting them on their feet. And that is your best situation. It's not necessarily over a food plot. You might see some does and some younger deer, but if you are truly going after those older age class bucks, you need to learn not where they're feeding at necessarily, but you need to learn where they're bedding at and get there. Mm-hmm. And same thing in the morning. I don't want to hunt a food source in the morning. I want to get early, early, early to the place where, okay, that first 20 minutes of daylight, if I hear footsteps, it could it's the possibility that that's a really good deer coming in because he's getting back to that bedding area before before light or right after light. That's his last movement. He's getting into into secure cover. Yes, and I think that, that was one of our keys. And so taking that, okay, that's where we're seeing a lot of these deer – is the areas where we have to hunt from the ground that almost eliminated us. And I used to have a friend that uh, he used to carry a stand on his back for the first couple of years we hunted together. We'd hunt public ground. He'd carry and carry and carry. And we'd yeah. be like, dude, what, where'd you hunt? And he's like, I don't, I didn't hunt anywhere. I just walked around everywhere. I walked. It was, there was, <laughs> it was like, he never found the ideal spot. So he got to where he never even carried a stand. And then he started seeing a lot of good deer and we're like, Huh? What are you doing? Maybe he's. And, what are you And doing? then that led into we were seeing these other areas where we couldn't hang a stand. That's where all the good deer were. Right. So we hunted a lot from the ground mm-hmm. in the areas because you either want to. It seems like you see ground blinds or you see tree stands. Right. And that's how a lot of people hunt. That's. But sitting on the ground was a great, great way for us to be different, and it allowed us to hunt areas where you couldn't really put a blind or you didn't really want to put a blind. And there was no places to put a tree stand. So mm-hmm. that's where we started hunting you, a lot. You think of, okay, how did I even get here? And you think of all the success that Indians had hunting from the ground. I mean, yeah. geez. Native Americans. It works. And anyway. Excuse um, me. Mr. PC another thing, Another thing was it just allowed us to hunt differently. Mm-hmm. And the biggest key was that we weren't carrying a 25-pound stand <laughs> on our back and causing us to sweat more. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a that was a huge plus for us. Mm-hmm. You don't carry that stand, therefore you're not getting overheated as quickly, and you can walk further, and you don't have to worry about packing up a stand. And you can just it was it was more mobile. Yeah, right. And right. and that was a big key. So keep those things in mind, Matt. Uh, now we'll, now, now you okay. have permission to go into where you were going. You can remove the reins and not hold me back anymore. Okay, so back to the pressure deer. And I've, I was diving in um, to basically a study that QDMA had shared. Kip Adams had wrote um, from a study done in 2002 um, out of Pennsylvania. So basically, they were looking to see how hunters are utilizing public hunting areas and, and basically the densities and, ba- and how far they're going in, this and that. So what they did was in 
2002, they waited till after the leaf drop um, so they could see and scan those woods. And they did flyovers with a with a airplane over. It was pretty low, so they scanned the areas. And because of Pennsylvania, their their gun season comes in right after Thanksgiving. So during their gun season, that first part of December, they did the flyovers. And because they have to have over, I think it's 250 inches of orange, their, their scanning, uh, whether it was a camera or whatever, was able to pick up how where hunters were at, basically. How and, densely and, populated, if you will, yeah, the hunters. Or- basically where they selected to hunt at. And then they correlated that with a ro- road systems through this public ground and the terrain. So the information that I'm about to share is is hopefully enlightening to the people who, who want to try things different or who look at public ground differently than others because – it was calculated that 87% of deer hunters hunted on 56% of the land. So that means if you're the other 13%, you have 44% of the land to hunt on. Now, Pennsylvania, this is north-central Pennsylvania, I believe it was, uh, there's some hills there, so some areas might not be that conducive to hunting, but 87% of deer hunters hunted on 56% of the land. Again, so if you're at 13%, you've got 44% of the land to run on by yourself. And so it said the percentage of area within one-third of a mile from the road. So that's that 56% of people hunted one-third of a mile from the road. So you look at this road system, and, and every time you're going to look at public ground, you're going to wait. Okay, road system, roughly 56% of people or half of the people are going to be hunting within close proximity to the road system and to me it's like okay let's let's change the way i'm going to approach and really think about let's go back to step one where we're scouting and looking at at overview maps i already know or i can in you know guess that the the majority of people are hunting within this proximity to the road so if I want to do things differently, I need to find the areas that I'm going to have to backpack in, or I'm going to have to float in, or I'm going to have to bike in to get to these areas. And to me, that's that's just positive news. I know I'm going to have to work a little bit harder, but I know that I'm going to distance myself away from the areas that are most densely populated in hunting. And what that means is that that's the highest pressure that deer experiencing in those areas so okay if i am avoiding those areas i'm actually going to the areas that deer are more likely to occupy during that time because they're less pressured so you said a couple things in that that made me that kind of sent a check mark in my head i want to talk on that okay first off i would be a little bit upset if i hiked in early and and I'm set up, and I'm like, okay, it's beautiful. I'm awake, and I hear, and then he's like a little bit further over, yep. and you're just like, what is he doing? Right. Well, anyway, so that w- that's the first thing. The other part of that is, um, you you touched on places that aren't conducive to hunting. Yes. And those, if it's not conducive to hunting, there's a good chance it doesn't get hunted much, which mm-hmm. automatically tells me. Probably a good chance some deer hanging out in there. Well, how many times we're, we're in hilly country and you see deer that bed down in just the ravines where the winds just swirl. The, the winds thermals swirl. work all the time, so, so the deer knows three sixty. 
where danger and, would be coming and from. And even on these conservation areas, like yeah. a lot of times here in Missouri, there are some crop fields on them that they lease to local farmer mm-hmm. or share mm-hmm. crop, but a lot of times those areas aren't the prime real estate for yeah. farming. So they, they do have some hills. And uh, one thing was true is if it wasn't conducive to hunting you could almost guarantee that it had grown up and it was right. thick nasty and deer were most likely hanging out in there mm-hmm. you can't climb right down there in the middle of that ravine and hunt them but you can figure out okay they're bedding here where is there water in there if there's water in there okay roll that out i don't i'm not trying to catch them as they're going to water okay where's the food at that they're going to around here okay there's a food source here that's got a lot of sign on it it seems like there's a lot of deer hanging out there. Mm-hmm. Here's the little ravine that you can't hunt. Now I'm going to get in between the two, but I'm going to hug closer to that thicket. Closer to I the ravine. Yeah. But one really key point in hunting public ground that we that we figured out and and just noticed and is that you have to you absolutely have to watch where your wind goes. Mm-hmm. You can't think of all the pressure that's going on there. Deer are really keened up. They're really, they're almost like a different species. It seems like even yeah. with turkeys with public ground versus mm-hmm. private True. ground, they they act a little bit different. Public ground is you have to watch your wind, and I, and I kind of almost retract a little bit because I say that because I did find certain situations where close to the close to the office or wherever they were, they're used to interacting with deer yeah. a lot or an archery range or whatever. They're used to smelling, but. For the most part, you have to watch your wind mm-hmm. because those deer, since they're so tuned up on, on pressure and people hunting, that as soon as they catch the wind, they're out of there. Right. Or they're going, they're they're moving around. You don't even see them. So when you really watch your wind, where it's going, how, how you're getting into that, that was key. And that's what's going to elevate your game to where you can continue to have success. Right. On public ground. So I, I think, you know, again, you were talking about the areas that – aren't conducive to a tree stand where you're just not going to have the success because of the terrain and or uh, the people are avoiding because they don't want to deal with the terrain which is actually another uh, stat they throw into that study so i encourage you to read it if you if you want to know more about it but if you get into those areas that there is terrain differences and here here's the other one to to consider is if you're hunting late season and if there's terrain you're going to want to focus on the south-facing slopes. And if it's early season during that Indian summer or, you know, October lull where it's warmer temperatures, those deer are most likely to be on the northern side of a slope bedding because it's cooler. You know, they're not soaking in the sun all day long. So it's, you know, that's another the factor to consider if you're going into those areas where away from people where most people aren't going and where the deer are going to want to be, where they feel more safe, consider the temperature. Deer aren't going to bed in the same place every single day. They're going to move just like they're not going to feed on the same stuff every single day. They're going to feed based on what the temperature tells them that they need to feed on. And same place with bedding. They're not going to bed the same exact place every day. So consider that if you're in those in those areas. And distance yourself. Get away from those areas that are within a third of a mile from county road. I mean, the roads within the public ground and and Put yourself in a situation where you're one of those 13% people who are, who have 46% of the 44% of the land to hunt, and find those areas. Use those topo maps. Make yourself different. Make yourself different. I, this has I'm been unique. A, a really cool. I'm unique. This wow. Um, this has been a really <laughs> a really uh, I guess motivating podcast for me. I, I took a lot out of this just because it, it gets me back to wanting to hunt some public ground again. Yeah. Um, and the I'm great part about, about that is now everybody's heard this podcast. 
They're going to be going to those uh, to those unique areas, and now we've got the food plots and crop fields all to ourselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. Suckers, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, well, that, no, that's the kidding, culture but, aspect that we we're talking yeah. about. Which which one do you actually want to hunt? Which one are we suggesting you hunt? Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm definitely I'm, sticking back all to what we talked about. Yeah, making absolutely. myself different, boating in, hiking in, biking in, mm-hmm. camping further back there if they if we have that opportunity. Um, but then again, hunting not from the ground if I have to. Not necessarily ruling out those areas that are close to the parking lots. If yeah. if everyone is doing that, if everyone's caught on, or everyone is doing is hiking further yes. in, and you notice that whenever you park, everybody's everybody's got a bike rack on their truck, mm-hmm. and you look in the parking lot, and there's four vehicles all have bike racks, and you're like, hmm, everybody's biking four miles in, or they're biking way in. Yeah. I may hunt right there close to the parking lot. Yep. And don't overestimate just try and it's almost this is this is a key to public ground for me is try to think like the deer and then trying to think like the other hunters yes and if the deer are doing this if they're if they're and i guess it doesn't work with the podcast i'm using my hands yeah i'm, I'm um, looking at you understanding yeah. what you're saying you're shaking your hands mr if the puppet deer are here. doing this and they're way over here and the and the public ground hunters are doing this and they're way over here yeah i'm just trying to figure out how the deer are reacting to the other hunters and how I can take advantage of You that. have to capitalize on the fact that other people are hunting it. On, think, we're on private ground. You're the only one hunting it. You kind of control deer, or you, you know what the deer are doing. their natural state of right. their, their natural tendencies. But they do things a little bit differently on a lot of public ground. Because of the pressure. So, yes. again, you're learning what the hunters are doing. And then you're changing, adapting your tactics to know how the deer are reacting to the hunters. And capitalizing, being, the, being that... 13% range and yeah. going in and doing it right. Woo. That was, that was fun. And I, I, like I and I'm going to, we're going to have to go hunt some public ground this year. I, I really want to, I miss those days. I miss mm-hmm. the camping and, you know, one time here's a public ground. We were laying around camp midday, yep. picking seed ticks off of us. <laughs> <laughs> and we were kind of just laying there chilling around the campfire and just talking and laughing about the morning hunt. And, mm-hmm. We kind of hear gravel crunching. Somebody's driving up to go to the parking lot. And we look over, and here's this van. And I kid you not, it was a van. I think I've showed you a picture of this. I yes, may have to share yes. it on it. They've taken two vans, and it was like one of them had rear-ended the other one, and they just took the axles off and threw some threw some uh, JB Weld up there and welded the two together oh, with no. plastic. And it was like a stretch, stretch limo van. van that basically they had smashed two of them together is what it looked like. That's it awesome. It was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. And uh, that, that was, was just, their hunting rig. You never know what you're going to see on public ground. That no. was that was funny and uh, just another fun memory of public ground. Yeah. Well, we honestly we need we need to do it. We need to just devote uh, devote some time scouting something, and you know maybe that's that maybe that's Facebook Live stuff or or you know reviewing maps prior. We should honestly probably go through the whole process of doing it. I think that'd be yeah, cool. We could do a Facebook Live on scouting with the maps and and what we're doing. And yeah. I'm not going to tell them where, what area we're going to until <laughs> we've been there. Keep that a little bit yeah. under the wraps. Yeah, until we've we've. I, I really wanted to do this this year is pick a spot on Mark Twain National Forest yeah. or a conservation area and say, okay, look, judging on the map, this is where we're going. We're mm-hmm. going to go scout it this summer. Yep, looks good. There's some old rubs and scrapes from last year mm-hmm. or years prior. Looks pretty good. Here's my approach. This is what I'm going to need to get in there. Yep, and then try and film and show that. We tied it, it all together, and, done. and it may be only shooting a, a, a mature doe in there, or oh, yeah. or Matt shooting a forked horn. Um, <laughs> Come on, man! <laughs> and I got just, the I got the itchy trigger finger. <laughs> yeah, and so that it could be one of those, and just yeah, it, it, it's a great 
for me, I I think it's awesome, and sometimes it's overlooked. Oh, of, I, I, of, I definitely uh, think so. Yeah. public ground and, and doing it this way. So, anyway... That pretty well pretty well wraps up an hour podcast on hunting public ground. You got anything else you want to add? You look like it. Be you. sure to go to Facebook page. We're getting ready to put that video up now, June 10th. Look at it. Watch it. Yeah. Share it. June 10th, uh, what was once a wasteland. Yeah. Something like 50 that. 50 years ago. 50 years ago, what this was a wasteland, this man changed it or something yeah. like that. Everything has changed. Um, it's it's so good. And, and hopefully you guys learned some stuff on hunting public ground. And you can be successful using these tips and tricks. And you know what? Maybe we'll run into you on public ground someday. That's right. Um, So anyway, uh, hopefully you'll join us next week. Thank you guys for listening. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you want to see more, check us out at landandlegacy.tv or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Take pride in knowing that God has called us in Genesis 2-4 to work and take care of the land. So keeping that in mind, remember to do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God. Yeah.